This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentercom slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. I can't even tell you the amount of relief that it provides me to know that I don't have to die the way that it's been described to me that my brain tumor would take me on its own. This YouTube video made by a young Californian woman dying of brain cancer has been viewed more than 11 million times. Its impact has been profound. I hope to enjoy however many days I have left on this beautiful earth and spend as much of it outside as I can, surrounded by those I love. I hope to pass in peace. Brittany Maynard was just 29 when she left her home state of California to go and live in Oregon, a state where the world's longest-running assisted dying law offered her a choice about her final days. Incredible to think that a religiously conservative country like the USA could give rise to such a law. Even more incredible is that 18 years later, more and more states are adopting it. Oregon's Death with Dignity law rewrote the map about assisted dying in America. Its success has left opponents with a big problem. How to discredit something that even its critics acknowledge works. The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. Of the eugenic impulse. This is evaluation of We just don't talk about it. Against the invasion of death. We play the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control me. The police are obliged to charge me. What the hell can you do? Murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. My name is Andrew Denton, and you're listening to Better Off Dead. Then-Liberal backbencher Kevin Andrews passed a private member's bill which killed the Territory's euthanasia laws. I don't think future Australians will thank us if we didn't have the courage to address this issue. It's 1997, and in Australia's Northern Territory, the world's first experiment with a euthanasia law has just been snuffed out by a Conservative federal government. But across the Pacific... In the US state of Oregon, an end-of-life law is coming into effect after a long and bitter battle. How it came to be in religiously conservative America stands as a masterclass in public policy, one that set the template other US states have since followed. So I've decided to come to Oregon to find out how their law works and to meet the two men who play pivotal roles in getting it onto the books. They're the odd couple of America's assisted dying movement, one a careful lawyer precise of word and deed, the other a retired British journalist once dubbed the Antichrist because of his refusal to be quiet about how people really die. Well, you have, in this area, when you attempt to pass death with dignity reforms, you have a perfect storm of law, medicine and faith. First, Eli Stutzman, attorney at law with offices in Portland, Oregon, a primary author of Oregon's Death with Dignity Act 
and its lead political strategist. And really what I did at the time was I took an issue that was on the political left of the spectrum and I drug it to the political middle. It was a painful fight to get it there. Uh, nobody's going to win anything on any issue as long as that issue's out on the end. What drew you to the issue? Undergraduate studies in religion. In an ethical course, there was a case study that involved a patient, and he was end-stage renal failure on dialysis, um, made a decision to withdraw life support. And having made that decision, he was going to accelerate or hasten his own death. And the next question for him, and of course the case study in the textbook, if he's made the decision to end his life by um, terminating support, um, why can't he go one step further and hasten his own death? And I thought that was a very fair question. And by the end of the case study, the physician had convinced the patient that the patient was not only wrong, but it was the wrong question to ask. And, and the patient in that case study actually apologized for having raised the question. And I took issue with that. The spur for Eli Stutzman to fight for a sister dying was ethical. For expatriate English journalist Derek Humphrey, it was completely personal. Oh, hello, Derek. Hello, Andrew Denton. Hi. Um, what a beautiful part of the world. I've never been here before. Yes. Yeah, I thought you'd enjoy it. Derek lives at the end of a road deep in the woods outside Eugene, Oregon. Uh, this is what in Australia we call a man cave. <laughs> man cave? <laughs> I call it the engine room. Now 85, for 40 years, Derek has uncompromisingly fought for laws to help people die more humanely a passion driven by the lingering death of his first wife, Jean. In 1975, after an exhausting and painful battle against breast cancer, Jean asked Derek to find the drugs to relieve her of her torment. Helped by a friendly doctor who insisted his name be kept out of it, Derek complied. Finally, one morning, as Jean lay racked in pain at home, she could take no more. She was a very blunt-spoken woman, Lanc a Lancashire woman, very straightforward, and she said, I'll die at one o'clock today. Straight like that. And um, we spent the morning together uh, talking and playing our favourite music and uh, going over the marriage and a couple of rows that we'd had. She gave me permission to marry. She said, I've said to the boys, they must accept whoever you choose to marry, if you do. I was amazed when she said that. I, I burst into tears. <laughs> anyway, we got to, uh, to one o'clock, and I thought, if she doesn't say anything, then I'm not going to do anything. And it topped up, you know, it's her decision. But at, at one o'clock, she said, look at the clock. It's, go and get it, she said. So I went and got the drugs and uh, mixed them into a cup of coffee, put in lots of sugar in a mug, in a favourite mug, brought it back and put it on the side ta bedside table. And she said, is that it? I said, yes, if, if you drink that cup of coffee, you will die. And uh, then I got on the bed and gave her a last hug and a kiss and uh, we said goodbye. Then. I got off the bed and sat beside her so that she could drink properly. And she picked up the mug and gulped it all down. She, she, no, no hesitation whatsoever. 
she just had time to say goodbye, my love, and she became unconscious. It worked that fast. It was very powerful. I sat there in pure astonishment at her courage and her uh, way she'd worked things out. An investigative journalist for London's Sunday Mail, Derek knew he'd broken the law and could be up for 14 years in jail. But as he checked the records, he discovered that otherwise law-abiding citizens had been doing the same thing for years and not been sent to prison, even though they'd been dragged through the courts on a charge of assisted suicide. Sensing an injustice, Derek moved to California and set about writing the book that would turn the euthanasia debate on its head. Published in 1991, it was called Final Exit. Well, the universal truth is that everybody wants to die quickly and peacefully, but uh, everybody wants to live as long as possible, (laughs) of course. But the end comes for us all, and uh, people think about uh, how shall that end be for me. The vast majority of people do die uh, in a okay manner, but there's some... I would say 10% of of deaths are slow, undignified, uh, distressing. And uh, those people want to know in an intelligent fashion uh, how they can uh, accelerate the end uh, in the, perhaps in the presence of their family and friends, non-violently, peacefully and quickly. Derek was warned the subject was taboo and that a book advising people how to die would be abused. No publisher would touch it, so he published it himself. And first of all, nobody noticed it. And, uh, but uh, one day, uh, after about six months, the Wall Street Journal did an article on its um, uh, Friday page about Final Exit and who liked it and who hated it and who uh, thought it was appalling. And uh, next week it was a bestseller across the country. I kept on, ha- I kept on having to print 100,000 every week. I, I was staggered. <laughs> I was called Antichrist of the Month and things like that, but I didn't mind. <laughs> and it, can, it, it stepped up the sales. The jury did not convict Jack Kevorkian of first-degree murder. They opted for the lesser second-degree charge. They also convicted him of illegally delivering a controlled substance, cecobarbital, without a medical license. By 1994, Eli and Derek found themselves working side-by-side, campaigning for an assisted dying law in Oregon. Similar proposals had already been defeated in Washington and California, not helped by nationwide publicity for Dr. Jack Kevorkian, dubbed Dr. Death by the media for helping over 100 patients to end their lives. He was, was clearly a maverick and didn't recognise any limitations and ultimately went to prison for it. Eli Stutzman. He was an MD, he was a physician, but he didn't care for patients and certainly not uh, terminally ill patients. And so he didn't speak with any credibility from, from his experience as a physician. And there was a side to him that was a bit odd. 
And then if you further understand that he'd created a machine that, you know, suspended bottles from a small rack and, and with an IV needle into a patient's arm, a patient could trigger the machine and bring about their own death. So it was illegal. So he would do this, for example, in the back of a Volkswagen van in a public park. And we, we would never do that as a matter of public policy. That's no way to practice medicine. Derek Humphrey had strong memories of Kevorkian too. He phoned up and asked to see me. I'd heard of him. Um, and he said, he came into my office and he said, I'm, I'm starting a uh, suicide clinic. And will you send me the patients to die? I said, no. And he was shocked. I said, look, I believe this is something that's going to be carefully done, ideally in the home, with medical advisors, with family present. I said, getting in the taxi and, and going to your clinic is going to hold us up to criticism, be ready for abuse. And I said, that's not what we're fighting for. I can't act unlawfully with you and at the same time try to change the law. And uh, he got up and, and shouted uh, something, oh, you're a shame, you don't really believe it, and stomped out the office. He, mm. he couldn't believe that I wouldn't help him. Eli Stutzman saw the bad publicity around Kevorkian as an opportunity to distinguish their campaign from him. Whenever he was asked, he stated that under the law they were proposing for Oregon, Kevorkian would be thrown into jail. We did not repeal the assisted suicide law in Oregon. It's still a crime to commit assisted suicide. What we did is we created and passed a public policy that in narrow circumstances involving a, a dying patient that you might be able to allow the patient to hasten his or her death. That's very different than what Kevorkian did. The Death with Dignity Act that Eli, Derek and others put to the voters of Oregon was based on very careful research into exactly what was happening with assisted dying in that state. The breakthrough was when we realized it was already happening and how it was happening. Then the task was to reduce it to written policy. The Oregon team closely studied the failed attempts to introduce legislation in other states. The proposals in Washington and California would have allowed lethal injection or euthanasia. Advocates aside, I didn't discover one patient, one family member that wanted that. What I discovered was patients that were already obtaining medications on their own, sometimes with the help of their physician, sometimes by hoarding. But they were doing this. They wanted information. Sometimes they were getting the information too. And, and that's what people really wanted. And once, once I understood that and we had that experience uncovered, then we could write a law around it. Inside the camp, there were divisions over whether a patient should drink life-ending medication or a doctor should administer a lethal injection. Derek Humphrey argued for injection. I was wrong and he was right in that um, in the debate we had almost 20 years ago now that uh, doctors, certainly American doctors, um, don't mind this indirect way of ending the patient's life but they don't like the idea of, of injection of lethal substances into their patient in front of them. It was critical to get this right, because if doctors opposed it, then that would mean the end of Oregon's bill. As a group of doctors, the Oregon Medical Association is not a particularly lefty group. I mean, they, they, you know, doctors are, are pretty conservative. Lee Dolan had just been elected president of the OMA, Oregon Medical Association, when the debate engulfed Oregon's doctors. So when we began the discussion about assisted suicide, 
my prediction was that the OMA was going to come out against the assisted suicide, you know, because I thought it's a conservative organization. The people that introduced the resolution gave their initial comments, and then we had basically a two and a half hour heartfelt discussion about the issue. And doctors who were pretty conservative politically started getting very personal. They talked about my mother when she was dying of cancer. I had this patient who I really loved and his suffering was, was, was almost unbearable to watch. And what they really said is this is not an easy decision. You can't just say, well, you know, we're, you know, we're supposed to support life at all costs, you know, period, because doctors know that that isn't true. They're, you know, relieving suffering, yes, but, but the issue of, of assisted suicide, it turns out most of the doctors felt it was more complicated. Lee himself had reservations. So I talked to the chief petitioner for the ballot measure, and I said to him, I said, you know, doctors have been doing this for years, but just not not talking about it, not documenting it. Why do you want to bring this out into the open? But, you know, what? you're just going to make a bunch of trouble. You're going to make everybody crazy. There are going to be people screaming at each other. And he said, well, because this is the right thing to do. You know, it is not right to be dishonest and secretive. If we believe that this is the right thing to do, then we should be open about it and we should, you know, we should discuss it. And after two and a half hours of this discussion, it became clear that we would not reach a consensus on the issue. And what we decided is to take no position. What influence do you think that neutral position had in the law eventually being passed? I think it had a major position. I think I think the fact that the Oregon Medical Association, which of course people would think would have the the expertise on the issue of of the dying patient, the fact that we took a neutral position on it meant that there it wasn't necessarily wrong to do it. I mean, I guess that's what it meant that that the voters said gosh, you know, the Oregon Medical Association is not telling us this is a terrible thing to do. So we need to think about it. We need to, we need to make our own decision. What the OMA was saying is the decision about assisted suicide is not a medical decision. It's a moral decision. And this kind of moral decision is not something where doctors have the answer. For Oregon doctors, this was uncharted territory. Even those who supported a law had concerns. Would the law protect them if they helped a patient end their life? Would there be anonymity? What if you gave them medicine and the patient didn't die? So there was there were all sorts of practical concerns, but you know, once again, I think the doctors who felt it was the patient's right were willing to say that all these practical things can be worked out. Ultimately, if we feel that the patient has the right to do this, we need to to let the, you know, let the law pass and then do our best to, to, to work with it to make it work, make it work as efficiently and as, and as positively as possible. Eli Stutzman and the rest of the Death with Dignity team crafted and recrafted their proposed legislation, building in safeguards to counter doctors' concerns and their opponents' objections, particularly about the elderly and the disabled being made vulnerable. Well, the key factors are that it has to be a competent adult patient and they have to be able to make their own decisions. So no minors, and if you've lost your competency, nobody can make a substituted decision for you. 
Um, you have to have an attending physician and a consulting physician both practicing in the area of the terminal disease. They need to reach a prognosis, uh, the attending physician that you have six months or less to live, and the consulting physician needs to reach a similar prognosis. And the point is where we have purposefully limited the Oregon Death with Dignity Act to those circumstances where uh, death is imminent and the patient is acting voluntarily and willfully and is competent. Derek Humphrey explains how the law was designed to protect not only the vulnerable, but also doctors and nurses who didn't want to participate. A person who is disabled or a person who is very old cannot necessarily use this law. Um, not on those grounds alone. They, they have, would have to be terminally ill as well as old or, or infirm. And we have a conscience clause. We put in a conscience clause that doctors or nurses or pharmacists can walk away from this. They need not be involved and there is no punishment or, or stigma by walking away from this uh, on your ethical, religious grounds or whatever grounds. You can just say, no, I don't want to be involved in this, thank you. Other safeguards were built in. Any request had to be made orally and in writing. All other treatment options had to be explained to you. Fifteen days after the first request, a new oral request had to be submitted. And at the end of all that, if all the requirements of the law had been met, the doctor would supply you with a prescription for life-ending medication that you, and only you, could choose to take. To become law and make history, the proposal crafted by Eli, Derek and others needed to win a popular vote at a statewide referendum. The opposition was fierce. The opponents said, oh, people will be flocking to Oregon to kill themselves. There'll be people, they actually said there'll be people dying in the parks and in, in the restrooms and, and uh, people who don't really want to die will be pushed to an early death and that sort of thing. Do you remember what their advertising said at the time? Oh, you know, it's the start of Nazi-type euthanasia and that type of thing, you know. The language was that strong? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, they couldn't... Uh, it got into a very, very dirty fight. Eli Stutzman recalls that one opponent stood clearly above the rest. You know, our opponents would like to suggest that organised medicine opposes death with dignity reforms. And I can assure you that if... All we had to do was fight organized medicine. We'd have almost no fight at all. Our money and the, and the battles that we fight actually come from predominantly the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Eli's strategy was to treat the church with respect, accept their moral objections and not attack them head on. Research had shown, however, that the most trusted voice in the debate belonged to nurses. That voice was used to powerful effect. We had a line in one of our paid advertisements it was very simple, and the line was this. When did we decide to let one church make the choice for all of us? It was delivered powerfully by a woman by the name of Patty Rosen, who was a mother and a nurse, and she'd helped her daughter die. Still, as you can tell, um, an emotional story for me to tell. And I was there when we produced this political ad. When Patty delivered that line, and we all fell silent. I mean, just a hush went over everybody present. It was so powerful. We didn't mention the church by name, 
We didn't have to. And, and it was all we needed to do and say. In November 1994, the people of Oregon voted in favour of the bill by 51 to 49%. The day after it passed, our opponents, um, the Right to Life movement, rushed into court and got, in, got found a judge, a tame judge, and got an injunction and stopped it. For three years, the legislation was held up in court. In 1997, it went back before the voters of Oregon. This time, it was passed by 60 to 40. The nice thing about this issue is there's truly majority support. I've not seen a survey in any state in this country or any other country's survey where the citizens, the people, had anything less than majority support. There's plenty of room for disagreement. And if those in the majority are modest in what they pursue in their reforms and they're considerate and they allow the churches to disagree and the physicians to disagree to opt out and make room, you have a great chance for success. Oh my goodness, do we hear about Oregon in the UK. Oregon's the great darling baby that has turned out perfectly and has done so well. And Oregon is, look at nothing you've ever said has ever taken place in Oregon. This is Kevin Newell, an academic specialising in American history, addressing an international anti-euthanasia symposium in Adelaide in 2015. Like many opponents, Kevin finds Oregon to be an inconvenient truth. My basic line is, don't look at Oregon, look at Belgium if you want to see the future of institutionalising a culture of assisted suicide. Perhaps Kevin doesn't want to look at Oregon because after 18 years in existence, the facts are impossible to argue. So tightly written is its law, applying only to terminally ill people with six months or less to live, that the number of people who use it is less than half of 1% of all the people who die there. On average, every year, that's about 100 out of 35,000 deaths, a statistic that hasn't changed in 18 years and a nightmare for those who argue the slippery slope. Desperate for purchase, they seek other lines of attack. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. In fact, we've seen a higher suicide rate going up in Oregon. So the, the reality of the assisted suicide, it actually worked as a suicide contagion effect. So when you're arguing that argument, it's assuming Alex that Schadenberg is a Canadian opponent, urging me to examine the phenomenon of suicide contagion in Oregon. It is an accusation also being talked up at the conference by former New Hampshire legislator Nancy Elliott. Suicide contagion is another very good... Um, thing to point out to your, um, you know, committees, um, and, and it's worked very well in the states. The statistics out of Oregon are consistent with uh, a suicide contagion, and um, we all know that when grandma and grandpa commit suicide, it makes it that much easier for their children and grandchildren to say, oh, this is what you do when life gets hard. Litigation attorney Catherine Foster takes it one step further. After Saddam Hussein was hanged, the rate of suicide rose. Young men were hanging themselves. And there's a link between prescribed suicide and regular suicide. Places that have legalized prescribed suicide have seen an enormous increase in deaths by non-doctor suicide. In Oregon, the suicide rate has skyrocketed. As we fight so have these laws led to suicide contagion in Oregon? Oregon's state health officer is Katrina Hedberg. 
One of her duties is to report on who uses the death with dignity laws. The Oregon Public Health Division was assigned the job of keeping track of the data um, and to issue a report. And I sort of give that background because it means that I really don't take sides in the debate. I put to her concerns about suicide contagion. Something that uh, Alex Schadenberg mentioned was the suicide contagion effect, the implication being that in some way the assisted suicide law here had increased or added to the increase of suicide in Oregon. So we do track uh, suicide just like we track death with dignity. And suicides in Oregon have been higher than the national rate, but that's been going on for decades. So it re we have not seen any change, if you will, in the statistics around rates of suicide in Oregon before or after the Death with Dignity Act took place. So what I would say is that in Oregon, when it comes to suicide, the risk factors for suicide um, include a history of depression, of mental illness, previous suicide attempts. We know who's particularly at risk. Older men who may be widowed, their wife has died. Veterans are at high risk of suicide. We have a number of groups, and they're very different than the people who participate in Death with Dignity. Um, tends to be equal parts, men and women. Again, the average age is 70. Many of them are married, uh, and they've all been diagnosed with a terminal illness by definition, otherwise they couldn't participate. So I would say uh, that there's nothing in our data to show that. Fact. There is no evidence of suicide contagion in Oregon as a result of their death with dignity law. But this was not the only opponent's claim I had come ready to explore. Uh, Mr Schadenberg says there has never been a study that looked at all the deaths and showed you that the law was followed correctly. I don't understand the comment because we do look at all the deaths in the state of Oregon and we look at all of the reports from Death with Dignity and we keep track and we match those and when we don't, when it's a little unclear, we call the doctor's office back up. We have a whole team of people who look at, whose job it is to look at death certificates, they're called nosologists, and to query any of the deaths that look uh, unusual or things that they're not able to discern exactly what the cause of death and they call funeral homes, they call physicians and they make every attempt. So we have a pretty sound system of investigating. To the question of the slippery slope, do you see any evidence of people being coerced, people who are considered vulnerable such as the elderly or those with disabilities or those with economic issues? That's the other thing we've noticed. It is it's not people who are poor or disadvantaged. In fact, it's the opposite. And those tend to be people not only who've gone to university or have gone to college, but actually have graduate degrees. So uh, lawyers, professors, people who are very well educated, who are really using this as, as a choice. So I have not seen any evidence that it has really changed from uh, very well educated, um, again, average age of 70 years, primarily white and equal parts men and women, that, that has, there haven't really been any trends in who has participated over the past 18 years. The more I learnt about the success of Oregon's law, the more I began to understand the desperate nature of attempts to undermine it. Nancy Elliott again. Um, the, other, the other thing that, that we point out is when suicide is a treatment option, all care goes down because... Um, you know, in Oregon, where it's been, where it's legal, they have um, denied care to um, patients, yet said, well, but we'll pay for uh, assisted suicide for you. We'll pay for your lethal dose. So 
I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. But once, once doctors say, oh, this type of cancer, everybody goes for assisted suicide. They're no longer going to want to give anybody treatment. Has this been the experience in Oregon? Dr. Lee Dolan from the Oregon Medical Association. I'm not sure why, why people say that. If anything, it would be the opposite. And then the first question is not to talk about assisted suicide, but to say, well, what have you been taking for the pain? You know, tell me about it. Or, or I just, I'm such a burden on my family. Can we get you help at home? I mean, talk about what, what the real issues are. You know, can we get you a visiting nurse? Can we get you a caregiver during the day? Does your daughter need, need a break, you know? So, so the doctor and the patient are encouraged to have all these discussions about about the issues that people have when they're dying in order that the question about assisted suicide maybe won't have to come up at all. What impact has the law had on end-of-life care and palliative care in Oregon? The silver lining is that I think end-of-life care in Oregon, palliative care, has, has been far better since the assisted suicide law passed because doctors, patients are empowered so the patient knows I can always bring up this assisted suicide question and the doctor knows that the patient can always bring that up and the doctor doesn't want the patient to bring it up. So the doctor and the patient are going to really work hard to do a heck of a better job with the patient at the end of the end of life in terms of comfort, in terms of all sorts of things so the patient doesn't have to bring up this issue. If the law hadn't been passed, how would Oregon be different today? I, I think we do we do a much better job because of this law. It's done exactly what it's supposed to and more. It's it's allowed people to make the decision to end their lives when they have a terminal condition without having to be at the mercy of the medical profession. I think there's an acceptance even among the opponents of assisted suicide that this is the law, it's in place, the public has voted twice to, to approve the law and, and that this is just part of medical practice in Oregon. It's just something that, 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 is, that patients and doctors are allowed to do. I'm Dan Lee. I'm the Miriam Taft uh, Cannon Professor in the Humanities at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois, and I'm also the director of the Augustana Center for the Study of Ethics. Daniel E. Lee, one of the United States' leading ethicists, was and remains an opponent of assisted dying. Tell me about your moral reservations. What are they? They come from a religious perspective. Uh, I believe that uh, life is a gift from God, a very precious gift from God to be uh, treasured uh, and uh, preserved. Uh, uh, and that uh, uh, suicide, be it uh, in time of illness or in any other situation, uh, uh, is to uh, reject that uh, that gift of life. Uh, I see uh, many people who uh, share my conservative views on physician-assisted suicide, uh, believing that they have the right to impose their views on other people, uh, and I don't think that's the case. Daniel has studied Oregon's death with dignity law very closely. Can I take you back to the mid-90s when this was first put forward as a proposition? 
did you believe at the time that it was a law that could be made to work or were you concerned, as many people are, about the ability to safeguard the vulnerable? Safeguarding the vulnerable is tremendously important. Uh, and what I was particularly interested uh, in seeing would be how the vulnerable would be uh, protected and safeguarded uh, in this law. I also uh, had concerns uh, about uh, the possibility of this being on a slippery slope, resulting in uh, things such as involuntary uh, euthanasia without the consent of the suffering individual. And But as I saw how the law developed, and I read the uh, annual report on the death with dignity law put out by the uh, Oregon Health Department, uh, look at the statistics, uh, and I've been reassured that there are adequate safeguards uh, in the Oregon law uh, to prevent abuses from happening. Yes, you take more than a passing interest, don't you? You look at these statistics quite carefully each year, is that correct? Uh, that is correct, yes. I, uh, that, uh, uh, well, it's an issue that I teach about in my classes and I've written about, uh, uh, so I do have a certain academic uh, interest uh, in the issue. But the Oregon law, by limiting this to medications that can uh, be taken by the patient, if she or he wishes, uh, places a firewall uh, uh, that keeps you from going down that slippery slope. How do you respond to the suggestion that physician-assisted suicide can pressure the vulnerable into believing that they have, quote-unquote, a duty to die? Uh, and that is a, an excellent question. That is also a concern uh, that I've had, and one reason that I've been uh, watching the Oregon situation uh, very, very carefully. Now, uh, one uh, in the annual report, uh, they always include statistics uh, on uh, the reasons uh, that people give for requesting the lethal medication. And I've watched that carefully to see what's at the top of the list. The, the top three are losing autonomy, less able to engage in activities, making life enjoyable, loss of dignity. Uh, those uh, occur time and again. But the one I really watch for is burden on family, friends, and caregivers. And that's down the list uh, with uh, uh, 91% uh, of uh, those requesting uh, lethal uh, medication uh, saying losing autonomy is uh, their major reason. If um, there came to be a, a perceived duty to die, then I, I would be very concerned about this. But I don't see that happening uh, in Oregon. What can Australians learn from the experience of death with dignity laws in Oregon? I think it's important uh, that Australians uh, look at the record as to what has actually happened. Uh, the Oregon Public Health Division issues the annual report. Uh, uh, it's readily available online. Uh, that that ought to be uh, distributed in Australia uh, so that people are can see the numbers uh, as to what uh, has happened. It would be good for people in Australia to uh, know more about the Oregon law with the safeguards 
built into it, uh, and in particular, the firewall of uh, not allowing uh, lethal injection. Uh, And uh, when you see those features of the law, then it diminishes the fear of what might happen considerably. And to be clear, for the record, you would say there is no evidence of the slippery slope in Oregon. That's absolutely correct. I see no evidence of that uh, whatsoever. There is one other thing about Oregon's death with dignity law that comes as a surprise. Even though everyone using it is, by definition, within six months of dying, more than 30% of those who get the medication choose not to take it. I asked Lee Dolan why. What the prescription has done is empowered patients. It has allowed patients at the end of the life to say, this is not the doctor's decision about what's going to happen here. This is my decision. And this, this empowerment of the patient, in many cases, in the 30 or 40%, was enough to make them feel okay about what was happening to the point where, with appropriate counseling and pain control and palliative care, they didn't really need to take the prescription. They, they were willing to, to die a natural death, but they were very comforted by knowing that if they wanted to, if they felt that things were becoming intolerable, that prescription was there and they could do it. So, so that's what that 30 to 40 percent is all about. For Eli Stutzman, the success of Oregon's death with dignity law is beyond argument. 20 years later, this is the policy that works. It's been passed in Washington, it's been passed in Vermont. We now have a a law in Oregon that's more than 20 years old, with more than 17 years of experience. It's never been more popular. All the arguments that were made against it have never come to bear. Hmm. You know, to the extent our opponents have something to say, they've said it and they've lost it. Eli measures the law's success in the quality of life of those who've used it. If you're experienced in what happens here in Oregon, you understand that patients don't rush to do this. They make arrangements to do this, and if they need it, they take advantage of their arrangements. And they typically wait and just avoid the very last part, you know, the most difficult part. And they enjoy life as long as they can, and very intentionally so. They surround themselves with their family, and they, they revisit the things they want to revisit. And, and then when it gets to the point where, you know, the, the last and most difficult part is there, then sometimes they'll, they'll hasten that. And other times they will not. Other times they'll accept that too. But the point is, it's their choice. I plan to be surrounded by my immediate family, which is my husband and my mother and my stepfather and my best friend, who's also a physician. Um, and probably not much more people. Um, And I will die upstairs in my bedroom that I share with my husband, um, with my mother and my husband by my side and pass peacefully with some music that I like in the background. When Brittany Maynard moved to Oregon in 2014, stricken with aggressive brain cancer, she was given only six months to live. She used some of that precious time to create videos calling for Oregon's law to be taken up elsewhere. My goal, of course, is to influence this policy for positive change, um, and I would like to see 
all Americans have access to the same healthcare rights. But beyond that public policy goal, my goals really are quite simple and they mostly do boil down to my, my family and friends and making sure they all know how important they are to me and how much I love them. So powerful were Britney's words that opponents scarcely knew how to react. Online, they branded her a coward for choosing to die as she wished. At the Hope Anti-Euthanasia Conference, they couldn't even bring themselves to mention her name. Most, like I said, we have half of our states have um, a, a, a front this year. And a lot of it has to do with a young woman in the states. I'm sure you've heard of her. I'm not going to say her name because I'm not giving her a commercial. But she was co-opted by the opposition and um, they used her suicide to glamorize it. That's Nancy Elliott spreading the love. For Brittany Maynard, having a choice about how she died also gave her peace of mind to enjoy her final days. I hope to enjoy however many days I have left on this beautiful earth and spend as much of it outside as I can, surrounded by those I love. I hope to pass in peace. Brittany Maynard's wish came to pass on November the 1st, 2014. She took the medication in her rented home in Oregon and died peacefully surrounded by close family and friends. Good afternoon. I'm Brittany's mama. She called me mama, so I continue to go by that. After Brittany died, her mother, Debbie Ziegler, carried her message on to the people of California. My daughter was visibly relieved when she qualified for the medication. When she had the medication, she took great comfort in the assurance that she was the sole decision maker about how much pain she was going to endure. Her beautiful face softened. There was a peacefulness in her gaze. Please help me carry out my daughter's legacy. Please help me assure that other terminally ill patients don't face what we had to face. This bill will give terminally ill adults in California the option to choose aid in dying. And I thank you with my mother's heart for doing this. In 2015, the California legislature voted in favour of a death with dignity law modelled on Oregon's. Governor Jerry Brown, a lifelong Catholic and former Jesuit seminarian, had to decide whether or not to sign it into law. Brown spent some weeks considering his religion and his conscience. He turned to Brittany Maynard's family and even to South Africa's Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Finally, he put his signature to the bill. America's most populous state, with 40 million people, became the fifth in America to allow terminally ill people to legally end their own lives. Upon signing it into law, Brown said this, I do not know what I would do if I were dying in prolonged and excruciating pain. I'm certain, however, that it would be a comfort to be able to consider the options afforded by this bill. He added, and I wouldn't deny that right to others. Very near the end of her life, after some news trucks had left, I made banana pancakes 
And the night that we sat eating banana pancakes and looking out the window and the rain driving against the pane, she reached for my hand and she said, Mama, given the hand of life that we were dealt, this is as good as it gets, Mama. And it was. Thank you very much. The success of Oregon's Death with Dignity law puts into sharp relief two things. The increasingly desperate attempts of opponents to discredit them and the truth they don't want you to see, that this law works and exactly as intended. If you'd like to know more, head to the episode page at wheelercenter.com slash betteroffdead. Next episode, having learned how these laws work overseas, I head home to Australia to see how we compare. In Belgium, the Netherlands and Oregon, I'd seen how palliative care and assisted dying go together, the ultimate offer of help for those beyond even the skills of the most dedicated nurses and doctors. Without an assisted dying law to guide or protect them, I wonder how Australian palliative care deals with those same kinds of patients. Twelve angels from the north Twelve angels from the south Twelve angels from the east Twelve angels from the west Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels leaping from your mouth Angels lighting on your shoulders East and west, north and south